Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today on RN Huddle. For today's episode, we've decided to revisit a topic that touches each one of us as nurses, and that is the topic of sexual assault. You know, as our daily lives have dramatically shifted due to COVID and our, many are experiencing shelter-in-place orders, being in close contact, etc., you know, it's never been more critical for us to learn more about sexual assault and how to handle it as professionals. We brought sexual assault as a topic to you in a previous episode, and we discovered that this is actually something that touches many of you, and there's much interest in learning more. So to do this, we've brought in three SANE nurses, with SANE meaning sexual assault nurse examiners. They are certified. Uh, We brought in Claire Boeha, Jen Tran, and Debbie Fatelli, who all work as SANE nurses and will walk us through sexual assault in more detail in a two-part case series. Claire, Jen, and Debbie, thank you so much for being here today. Let's get started and learn more. Hi, my name is Claire. I am a forensic nurse examiner at Methodist Hospital and a certified emergency nurse at Nebraska Medicine. Hi, my name is Debbie. I am also a forensic nurse examiner. And on my main position, I am a pediatric nurse. I'm Jen Tran. I am the forensic nurse examiner team leader at Methodist Hospital. So today we want to have a conversation about SANE nursing and go through some case scenarios with everyone about different presentations that show up in the ER, can show up in clinic, and give some background on what we do as forensic nurse examiners and what this um, presentation means to us and what we do in our practice. In a previous presentation with Amy Mead, she spoke really well about what SANE nursing means and the intro to what SANE nursing is. And if you needed to listen to that, please go back and listen to that. We also wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the myths and dispel some of the truths versus myths on what we do as it comes to seeing nursing. So I feel that one of the biggest things when I get a patient or when a patient comes into my practice, um, especially from other care providers' point of view, that they always say, well, how do you know that this patient was a victim? Or how do you know that this patient was sexually assaulted? And do you guys ever run into that? Absolutely, Erla. The question, I hate the question. Well, what do you guys think? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think I believe my patient. And similar to like when a patient comes in with a headache, we don't have a test that can prove they have a headache, right? We listen to what the patient says. And so when a patient comes in and says that they've been sexually assaulted or assaulted, we believe them and we treat them. And I hate the word alleged, and every time I see it, if anyone uses it, the reader or the listener already doesn't believe, right? And so if we can get that out of our head, when a patient comes in, they don't allege a headache, they state they have a headache, and similarly, they state they are sexually assaulted. 
do I have a test to prove that? Absolutely not. But I believe them and I'll do my best to collect evidence um, to support that. I think that's very fair. When a patient says they have pain, it is our jobs as nurses to believe that the pain is what the patient says the pain is. And it is not. It doesn't hurt my feelings if a patient has a headache, just like it should never hurt my feelings if a patient has been assaulted. I am there to provide for them, provide for what their reality is and for what their experience is within their own body. Yeah. Trauma comes in all different forms. It doesn't have to be physical. It can also be emotional. So people can show up in whatever body that they come into, whether it's physical injury or just emotional injury. We are there just to help them. And we weren't there to identify, yes, you have been raped. That's not why we were there to do the kit. We were there just to collect the evidence to make sure that they're safe and make sure that we can do something medically for them that can be beneficial for them in this process of healing. Right. And similarly, there isn't an expectation of how they present. Like, I don't necessarily, I don't expect my patient to come in crying. And they might be laughing and they might be joking, but it's because of their past experience with trauma or how they're going to cope that manifests their presentation. And so we can't judge their presentation. They're not going to act the part of a victim if you have an idea what a victim should act like. So we wanted to transition next into talking about three fictitious case scenarios with you guys and talking about what these different patients would mean and what we would do in each case that would present to an ER. So the first one would be a 17-year-old female that presents to the ER with her parents after a sexual assault occurring two days ago after school. She initially told her friend who told her mom who told that patient's parents. This patient states that she knows who the assailant is and he is another schoolmate. She reports vaginal pain bruising around her neck with a fingerprint pattern that is consistent with strangulation. She's not wearing the clothes that she wore from the assault. So part of the kit that we do or all the elements of our kit consists of 12 items. The kit is put out by the state attorney general's office and provided to hospitals to collect. There's no fee to the patient for the kit collection, but there typically is a fee for the medical care. So it's 12 steps. And important in this case, I think, to bring up is that it's a 17-year-old patient and the patient needs to consent for the kit. Like parent obviously also needs to consent, but if the 17-year-old doesn't want a kit collected, then we can't collect the kit. So even if we have parent permission, if we don't have patient permission, then we can't start collection. We need to have a willing patient to do a kit. We can't strap down a patient to a gurney and make them do anything that they don't want to no, do. that is never ethical in any area of medicine. And <laughs> <No>. forensic <laughs> medicine is especially included in that. Our, when we are providing care, we are providing care to someone who is consenting to it. Anything other than that is re-traumatization of that patient and just furthering the pain and the harm that they have already experienced. So every choice that we make from here on out is the choice of the patient. Right. So in this kit, we, we would, there's 12 elements to this kit, which includes a foreign material sheet. Would you collect it? So no, not necessarily, because she wasn't wearing the clothes that she came in after the assault. There wouldn't be any debris. She's pro- if she ha- was wearing the same clothes, I'd say, yes, let's put you on this foreign material sheet that allows us to collect any debris that would maybe come off on those clothes. But if she wasn't wearing those clothes, then no. Debbie, would you collect her clothing? 
I would talk to her about what the clothing collection would mean. And that would be that whatever clothing I am collecting, I am not expecting to be able to give back to her. If she was not wearing the same blouse as she was two days ago when she presented, I don't think I would expect to take the blouse. But if she had underwear or pants that she was wearing that she was willing to let us take and put in the kit, I think that would be valuable only because all of the evidence that we would be collecting, the DNA evidence of the other person, that would flow via gravity out of her vagina to her vulva and then potentially land on whatever piece of clothing that would be there, whether it be her underwear or her pants. Those would be good things to collect and to have a discussion with her about. So for penile vaginal assault, we have 120 hours to collect. And so any clothing that would be up against the vulva for that amount of time, I think is reasonable to say that there could potentially be something on there that would be helpful. Absolutely. If she did not want to collect anything, we could swab that clothing. It is not necessarily going to be as good an option as collecting the clothing itself, but it is better than nothing. And it provides our patients with a scent of consent and giving them back their own choices Mm -hmm. in this scenario or in these um, situations. So would you guys collect the oral evidence swabs as well? Yes. And what about the additional swabs or what, what areas of the additional swabs could you collect? I think that is very much based on the patient-provided history. If we know that the patient had been licked or had other physical contact on other areas of her body, we could swab those areas as well. If there was kissing on her neck, then we could swab that area of her neck in the hopes of picking up whatever um, salivary evidence may still lie there. Same with the arm, if there was like grabbing of the arm um, or even fingers on the neck. In some situations, we can still collect the residual skin samples that might be there from the assailant. Specifically on this one, we see that the patient has fingerprint marks on her neck. And so even if she's showered, we know that we don't stand in the shower and scrub our neck and scrub our neck on our nipples, right? So since we know, in theory, that this patient had hands on her neck, I think it would be worth the additional evidence swab, swabbing the neck, looking for that touch DNA And then, like you said, if the patient was licked, bit, kissed somewhere, we're going to swab those areas. Next, there's the alternative light source swab. And then the alternative light source is just a blue light that goes over the body that we use to identify forms of evidence, physiological fluids like semen, urine, saliva. Would that be helpful? Absolutely. Even after they've showered, I think it's useful to use that. And then there's some research that came out that said we can use that light and we have orange goggles that we put on our face, on our eyes, that we could potentially see pooling or bruising underneath the skin. And I think that's really helpful if we have a pattern. It's not as helpful if we don't have a pattern because it's really hard to testify that I saw something underneath the skin, but still definitely worth using it to look for that and documenting it. And then fingernail swabs, I think, are very important because... If she were to grab something, if she was tearing at something, if there's even DNA evidence of soil material that was at the crime scene that could be underneath her fingernails, that's always important as well. Next part of the kit is a more intimate area where it's the mom's pubis swabs and combing. Um, Do you think that would be important? Absolutely. Yeah. And if they have pubic hair, we comb it. Mm -hmm. If they do or don't, we swab it. Right. Um, but the combing would be looking for foreign pubic hair. And next, uh, the external genitalia swabs. 
Yes. Visually inspect first, right? Looking for injury and then definitely an external swab. What type of injuries have you seen in the past down in the external genitalia area? With any kind of sex, you can develop an injury on the posterior foreshet. That's on like the, the if you uh, visualize the vulva as this vertical oval, on the lowest part of the oval, you might have some tenderness and tearing there. And that is a, that's a pretty common injury. Yeah, that six o'clock position. Yes. Yeah. Or that five to seven o'clock position. That if you think about it like a clock, I think that's that posterior foreshed area. But we don't see injury very often. No. That is probably more common. A lot of the research that we have is consensual, right? Who's going to do research on non-consensual sex? So all of our research is consensual sex. We're made to have sex. We're made to reproduce. You know, our, we have glands to provide natural lubrication. We can't turn our head off and tell our glands to not work. And so just because there isn't an injury doesn't mean that a sexual assault didn't happen. And, you know, you could have consensual sex and still have an injury. So lack of injury or injury does not confirm one way or the other what happened. And then anal swabs, how would you perform those swabs? The reason we would perform that swab is because we understand that um, any of this DNA debris will flow by gravity if someone is laying on their back. Beneath the vulva is obviously the anus. Usually we take that swab, it's slightly moist so that it makes sure it picks up whatever debris is there, and we swab around the anus. We do not go into the rectum. And then one of the second to last swabs that we do is the vaginal cervical swab. With that swab, we would go into the vagina, we would swab the canal of the vagina with one swab, and then we would swab the cervix. Have you guys ever experienced injuries in those areas in the vagina, and what type of injuries have you seen? Yes. So after I've inserted the speculum before, I've seen tearing on the vaginal wall, and then definitely bruising on the cervix. Yeah. And I think that's... if. You do see any injuries. I think that's pretty common is either lacerations or bruising, um, especially bruising across that cervix. And then the last swab that we do is the patient's reference DNA. Why do we do that swab? That's so that we know what they have their, we have their entire DNA profile. So there's a lot of new laws that came out about reporting. And with this report, because she's a minor, she would have to be technically non-anonymous. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, because she's a minor. Okay. So maybe important to just kind of define that as healthcare workers and we're mandatory reporters. So anyone that comes into your facility seeking care of physical crime, or I'm sorry, physical injury related to a crime, we have to report to law enforcement. The only exception to that is the sexual assault patient. And the exception to the sexual assault patient is if there's a minor, if they have serious bodily injury and a deadly weapon was used, then they can't even be anonymous at that point either. So in this scenario, the 17-year-old patient, since she is a minor, it would be a mandatory report to law enforcement. If she was an adult, it would still be a mandatory report because strangulation was present as well. So, And strangulation is itself a form of weapon, too. Absolutely. So another thing that we do in practice is tidying blue dye. Jen, are you able to explain that a little bit more in depth? Yes. It's a dye that we use to highlight injury. And so if we see injury on the vulva, we're able to use a dye. It kind of looks like a beta dyeing swab and swab the area 
the dye is absorbed by a nucleus, and so the skin has to be broken in order for it to be absorbed. And so when we wipe away the dye, what remains should be what is absorbed below that first layer of tissue. And then that helps us highlight and be able to photograph that injury much better. One thing I really like about where we work is that we have the Cortex Flow camera. It's very powerful. It's very, it highlights injuries. Debbie, what do you like about this camera? Is there anything that you'd like to add about this camera? It is a very detail-oriented camera. It can focus really well so that you have a very hyper-realistic photo, but it also has a function that allows us to look at injury a little bit better. It's the contrast filter that we apply, and oftentimes we can see the borders of the injury better, and almost like the depth of the bruise, I feel like it's... Um, really helps us show injury better. And, and it, helps us, it helps us better assess the level of injury so that we can have appropriate interventions on behalf of the patient in real time too. Right. And another thing I love is that it's voice command. So when you're taking pictures of the genital area, it's hard to have your patient, your hands on a camera and on your patient. And so this allows us to take pictures and tell the camera where to focus by our voice and not our hands. And one thing I know when I take pictures or when I'm confronting a patient about taking pictures, especially that those areas that are not physically visible with pain or bruise or lacerations, but I also like to take pictures of areas that are also tender because they may have bruising later on. So that way for documentation, it can be suspicious. It can be something that we can go back in later in our aftercare and say, hey, this is how this timeline has progressed. This wasn't there before, but now it is there later. So with this patient, uh, strangulation occurred. In a strangulation, it is a form of asphyxia produced by a constant application of pressure to the neck. There's three forms of strangulation, hanging ligature, manual. Pressure around the neck can result in a closure of blood vessels or air passages. Have you guys had many strangulation patients in the past? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and how many, how much injury do we see, Debbie? We see a variety of injury. Oftentimes, injury is, in the immediate sense, mild enough that patients do not worry about presenting to the ER because they believe that they are totally fine. I find that really concerning because injury and strangulation can present much later because patients may not have sought medical care prior, it can cause devastating physical effects days later. Right. So let's talk about the mechanism of injury. It doesn't take very much pressure to occlude the vessels in the neck. And if you listen, ever heard Sue Mikulski speak, she's an expert on strangulation. She brings, she'll compare it to a pop can. Like it takes less pressure to open up your pop can as it does to occlude the vessels on your neck. And so it's by the action of occluding those vessels that's preventing air or blood to getting to your brain, which is causing you to pass out. It takes more pressure to occlude the airway, but I think the vast majority of our community think that strangulation, you're going to have airway issues. Well, let's back up a little bit. First, probably those vessels were occluded. And that's where we see the petechiae is that increased pressure in the head from blood coming up and not being able to go down or vice versa that's going to cause the petechiae. Well, what if you occlude both of those vessels at the same time? you're not going to have petechiae. So that's why we really say this is a silent killer because it doesn't take much pressure on the neck. So you probably aren't going to have any kind of injuries noted on the neck. You might, may or may not see petechiae. So yeah, the patient says, oh, I'm okay. 
But Dr. Smock actually says there's 25 potential consequences. And a lot of that's vessel related. What if I shear the vessel? What if I create an aneurysm? What if I dislodge a clot? So the gold standard is for a patient to come in and do a CTA of their vessels at their neck because it can range from, like you said, acute chronic, or I'm sorry, acute anoxic injury all the way to chronic anoxic injury. And so um, taking strangulation seriously is really important because it is a silent killer. And even as, even being a certified emergency nurse and being a forensic nurse, I have seen patients who come in not just for strangulation by manual, but also by ligature because of their own self-infliction. So being able to do a well thought out assessment for patients, I think that's important for any nurse because those patients present in any type of form. Yeah. And it takes 15 seconds to lose bladder control. So, and it's not like my water broke. It's, I might have damp underwear. So asking those questions, did you lose consciousness? 15 seconds is a bladder control. 30 seconds is usually bowel control, loss of bowel control. So patients can also struggle with this later thinking, oh, I don't remember all the parts of this incident. People are not going to believe me because of this, where the inverse is actually true in a lot of instances because you have difficulty with that memory loss. You have those lapses in consciousness. You have that fuzzy memory because you you have that anoxic brain injury. That just makes us more concerned about what happened because that means that this injury was more severe. So moving on to the next piece, what screening implementations would you guys talk about with this 17-year-old? Would you, would you guys talk about human trafficking? Would you guys talk about domestic violence? Would you guys talk about anything else with her? All of it. All of it. And alone. Yeah. yeah. Without mom and dad in the room? Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing to... Suicide? Yeah. Suicide? Yeah. One of the biggest human trafficking pieces is that if this patient had presented as one of those teens who was missing from care or run away, someone that had a history of maybe being showing some truancy or someone that scored high on an adverse uh, childhood experiences scale, we would want to do a HEADS assessment, which is a human trafficking assessment, which talks about what are things at, going on at home, who do you live with, how are things going along at home education, employment, what are grades looking like, activities, what do they do on a typical day, if they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if they're engaging in drugs or alcohol, what that suicide or safety screening means, and what sex and exploitation is for them, what does that mean to them, how many sexual partners have they had, have they ever had any STDs, or have they ever been pregnant, or what kind of protection are they using, I think Following that scale is a great tool to use just to talk with them or even talking to any of your patients when aren't sure if they're at this adverse risk. And it's a good opportunity for education. So let's talk about healthy sex habits and healthy relationships. And yeah, I agree. With each of these tools, you can bring about some education and some type of reform in their life. And validation to reminding patients that they are more than some of the negative experiences that they've had, that they are a person deserving of respect and humanity, and that they deserve to be able to make all these choices that they want to make. That can help empower people who are otherwise very vulnerable to stand up and to make the choices that they are otherwise not allowed to make. 
in, in the end, after having this experience with this patient, we end up giving them some type of medical management where in that aftercare where it's STD prophylaxis, pregnancy prophylaxis, HIV, we offer HIV um, prophylaxis too. And we offer that as a clinic and we offer that as in our aftercare. But there's some other things that I think we really need to touch upon for safety at home and safety in the aftercare for mental health. And I think that that's the biggest thing to convey for everyone um, is that these patients go through this trauma and they're already at such a vulnerable age that they don't know what's going on um, in their life and how to take on this emotion. Um, Do you have any advice? Do you guys have any advice for nurses to give to those parents or to those teens? I think when talking to the patient, the the teenager, it's important to to recognize that they are going to go through a lot of different levels of emotion. Just like with any adult you might talk to, but especially with kids, there's going to be grief and anger and resentment and fear and embarrassment especially, and recognizing that hey, these are some things that you might grapple with in the coming days, weeks, months, years, and it is okay to have all of those feelings. It's important to be angry about what happened to you. It's okay if you're scared. That is an important thing for us to recognize and to help work through and to make sure that we are helping provide all that important protection. Everything they're going to experience is going to be valid. Those are emotions that need to be pushed down or ignored because that isn't going to help you in the healing process. Similarly with um, parents especially, they're gonna, there is a lot of resentment and fear and, and guilt that goes along with being a parent of someone who has been wronged in this way. And it's important to say, I'm so sorry this happened. This is how I want to do better for you in the future. And that the parents don't need to be beating themselves up and keep punishing themselves about something that they were never going to truly prevent. Right. Similarly, I had a patient once who their parent was just so distraught about what had happened. I just got down to their level and I was like, there isn't anything that you couldn't have done to prevent this. This wasn't your fault, ultimately. So, and that meant the world to them just hearing that from their perspective because it it truly wasn't their fault there and she parents can live through that vicarious trauma too which is why they equally need that need our support um and as well as the patient they always have that idea of what if i did something different what if i was home what if i just maybe checked on them a little bit more often or but you need to keep on pushing that idea of you are not responsible for this. This is the responsibility of the assailant. But we can do something to help promote healing. And it's now your responsibility to help promote the healing in the end. I love Brene Brown's short on empathy versus sympathy. Because I think whenever we know someone in trauma, and whether that's like a cancer diagnosis or sexual assault or something that they're going through that's horrific, we want to find words. And I love that Brene's like, rarely if ever... Have words changed something? Like, in order to make a change, you have to get on their level and say, ooh, I'm really sorry this happened to you. You probably aren't going to have a word that's going to make it better. So, oh, I'm sorry this has happened. This happened. What can I do for you? I'm here for you whenever you need me. And just um, opening yourself up, because you'll probably experience some of that trauma too, but that's probably the best place you can be for them. Yeah. I often have a lot of nurses who come to me and they say, 
I could never do what you do. That's the hardest job I could ever do. And it's like, it's all about the language that you use. It's just knowing how to use the language and knowing how to be empathetic with people. That's the hardest part. It is. Everything else you can be taught, you can learn how to do. But it's the empathy that's the piece. And there's a survivor, actually, that worked with the WCA, an adolescent survivor, teenage survivor, who's working with the WCA, and they started a teen support group. And that's great because then they can support each other through the process. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good place to stop for us today. Claire, Jen, Debbie, thank you so much for being here with us and presenting on this most sensitive topic. It really helps us to hear how you've broken it down, how you identify, how you proceed in the management of this very sensitive issue. It is something that we all are going to encounter at one point or another in our career, and I really think that your case-based presentation has helped us put the pieces together. We are going to continue this topic on the next episode of RN Huddle to complete our two-part series. I really hope that you join us so that you can hear the rest of the story. Thank you so much again for joining us, and I can't wait to see you back here on the next episode of RN Huddle. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE, or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.